He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Dear fellow healed ones, fellow redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, what would you do if it were you? What would you do if you were the one whom they hated, whom they rebelled against? What would you do if you, time after time, did nothing but hold out your hands for loving embrace to show them your grace, to show them your love, and time after time again that you tried to be there for them, they rejected you, they spat in your face? What would you do if you heard those promises that they made to follow you, to be with you, to worship you, come from their lips, but their hearts and their actions were so far from ever thinking about keeping those promises. What would you do if you were God and Israel was rebelling against you? Because this is a bad kind of rebellion feels silly to have to say that, but nowadays in our vernacular, rebellion isn't always a negative thing. I think sometimes we have a romanticized view of what rebellion is. If you're looking at a corrupt system of government, then the people who rebel against that system of government are cool, are nice, are taking their side at the right, right side of history, right? You have a teenager, they go through a rebellious phase, and it's innocuous, it's harmless, it's a little bit annoying maybe as the parent, but it's just a phase, right? There are these cultural, societal norms, and to rebel against them is in and of itself a positive thing, or, or held up as a positive thing, to rebel against culture norms. Rebellion seems like a good thing when the thing you're rebelling against is a bad thing, to put it simply. But what about when you're rebelling against your parents and all your parents have ever done is love you and provide for you and protect you? What if you're rebelling against your teacher and all your teacher is trying to do is teach you stuff to help you cope with life? What if you're Israel and you're rebelling against God to whom you owe everything? That's what our sin is. Sin is rebelling against the God we owe everything to. From one breath to another, from one blink of the eye to another, from one second of life on earth to the other, we owe a debt of gratitude for each to the God who made us and keeps us alive. But yet, what do we do? We call him beneath us. We criticize his word and his ways. We look at what he tells us to do, the way he tells us to think, and we interpret them more as suggestions for us to do with what we will instead of mandates from a holy God who wants nothing but our best. In our rebellion, we think we're better than God. In our rebellion, we think we can hurt God. Like a hamster in a cage. The owner comes in, and every time the owner comes in, it hisses at its owner. 
And it reaches in, the owner reaches in to give it a little pet to drop a treat in there or a new toy, and the hamster runs up and bites the finger of its master every time. Not only is that ill-advised because that master is the person who's providing for you, who is making your life better, Mr. Hamster, but it's also completely silly because what's the worst a hamster could do to a human being? Draw a little blood? Maybe there's a little bacteria in that saliva? I don't know. What's the worst that a human being could do to a hamster? You could kill it by accident. We can't hurt God with our rebellion. The only people we're hurting when we rebel against God, when we sin against God, is ourselves. But what is God going to do about that? What would you do if it were you? What do we deserve for our rebellion? That's the background. That's the explanation to what is the hardest verse to listen to in the whole Old Testament, if not the whole Bible, the last verse of our lesson from Isaiah. I'll read it again. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Yikes. This is a harsh, harsh sound, isn't it? It's like an alarm clock. When I was a teenager and I had my first part-time job, I was all excited. I had to get up pretty early. I was all excited to set up my alarm clock stereo. So I said, I'm going to wake up to my favorite song in the whole wide world. It's no longer my favorite song, and here's why. It took maybe two times waking up before I hated that song with all my being because it no longer was my favorite song that I'm listening to while I'm relaxing and chilling. Now it was the sound that I hear to wake me up from a peaceful slumber, to remind me that I have to go to work, to remind me that life is, life is coming at me. So my advice to you is if you're thinking about waking up to your favorite song tomorrow, don't, because you will hate it. It won't be your favorite song anymore. I think the reason why this verse is so hard for us to hear is because it's an alarm clock that wakes us up to spiritual slumber. If we had ever lulled ourselves to sleep, if we had ever convinced ourselves that sin isn't really that big of a deal, or that our justifications for our own flaws, for our own sins, are right, that we have an excuse for rebelling against God, for sinning against God, for treating the people in our lives the way that we treat them. If we ever actually bought that, this is the wake-up call. This is what sin, all rebellion, deserves. And this is what is coming. The people who rebel, this is their destruction, their decay, their worm. This is the result of their choice. And God says when all is said and done, they will live by their choice. But all is not said and done yet. Isaiah is preaching these words, these, this word of God to a nation of people who happen to be still alive. This is a group of people who are still alive. The clock is still running. Isaiah is painting a picture of what it will be like when the, when the time is up, when we have no more chance, no more time, if we continue on in rebellion. But the time is still going. 
Don't let one verse out of seven cloud our vision to what God is doing in the other six, what God has done and what God will do. Because God is not simply sitting back waiting for you to figure, out, figure it out. What does God say he will do? And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory." They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I, will, that I make will endure before me, says the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Israel had shown their intense unappreciation for all that God had done for them. They had spurned God's glory. So God's answer was, I'm going to take my glory somewhere else. But brothers and sisters, this is a lot different than a man who gets a new girlfriend and flaunts her around, especially in front of his ex-girlfriend, to make her jealous. This is more like when you serve ice cream to your kid, but they're too busy throwing a hissy fit to enjoy it, to eat it. So what you do is you slide that bowl down to their sibling. You see their younger sister enjoy it. She eats it up in five seconds, and then she's overcome with this sublime joy and enraptured bliss and this sugary, hyperpalatable dessert. And then your first kid looks at that, watches that, and starts to rethink the hissy fit he's throwing. God says, Israel, if you're not going to appreciate what I have done for you, if you're going to keep turning your back on me, God is going to make them jealous. He's going to slide the bowl of his glory down to nations Israel has hardly even heard of. And they're going to get it. Where you struggle to understand Israel, these people from far off lands, from the other side of the world, they're going to fully understand. And they're going to come to my temple, God says. And they're going to offer a worship that you thought was only possible if you were an Israelite. They're going to bring offerings. They're going to bring sacrifices. I'm going to take some of them and I'm going to make them priests. You couldn't even be a priest if you were any old Israelite, let alone a non-Israelite, different nation. This would make them so jealous. And they would be forced to recognize God's glory is not just for them. It's for everyone. God's grace and his mercy is for all kinds of rebellious people. This diverse group from all these different backgrounds would be united by one thing, one most important thing, that they all have been caused to understand God's glory. What even is God's glory? 
Earlier on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a vision of God's glory. He sees God in a throne room. The train of his robe is enveloping the whole room. God's sitting there. He's bright. He's glorious. He's wonderful to look at. Isaiah is terrified. And then there are these three angels flying up above him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Like we sing every time we have communion. That seems like a very fitting picture of God's glory, and it is. But since then, God has revealed his glory in an even more amazing, unfathomable way. Earlier we said that we can't hurt God, that we pose no threat to God. And in one sense, that's absolutely true. Unless God takes on flesh, Unless God becomes a human being, unless God becomes Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin, grows up, and is crucified, Jesus was hurt. God in the flesh was hurt as he was beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross by the very people he loved and came to serve. But this was not by accident. This was not some fluke in the divine plan of God. This was all by choice, so that by his wounds we could be healed. But brothers and sisters, here's the real thing. As torturous and awful as it would be to sit on that cross, if any of you had to do it, and I hope you'd never do, as awful as that kind of death would be, that's just what we could see with our eyes. Those onlookers who saw Jesus on the cross, they just saw a man crucified to a cross. But what was really happening was verse 24, inflicted on Christ. The eternal, awful damnation that any rebellious sinner deserves was inflicted on Jesus as he was stuck on that cross. Everything awful about that verse that makes us reel in horror and think, oh no, that's terrible, that happened to Christ in your place so that you can know you will never taste the punishment that a rebellious sinner deserves because Jesus already did. Jesus' death, his suffering of hell itself, and his resurrection from the grave was all 100% for you. Brothers and sisters, that's God's glory. That backwards, kind of scandalous, hard-to-understand glory that we see in the face of Jesus, our Savior. That's the glory of God's eternal, unfailing love. And that's what these people understand. You know how we know? Because they want to do the only logical thing to do when they realize this about God. They want to worship Him. That's what worship of God is. It's just responding to God and responding to what He's done for us with thanksgiving and praise and prayer and fellowship. This is a group of people from all over the world, but that doesn't matter doesn't matter, God is saying, where they come from, what vehicle they rode into town on. What matters is what has caused them to come together. 
that God has caused them to see his glory, to believe and trust in him, and to appreciate what he has done for them. Brothers and sisters, don't you feel cool that you are the fulfillment of prophecy? Isn't this what Isaiah is talking about? A group of people from a diverse background from all over the world who have come together because of one thing that we share in common, that we understand God's glory. And you have been caused to see God's glory through your baptism, through another seemingly insignificant thing, just the washing of a head real quick, But that was when God entered your heart and caused you to be able to understand his glory for who he really is and what he's done for you. And in a couple minutes, it's going to look like all we're doing is having members of Trinity come up for a little snack, a little piece of bread, a little sip of wine. But what's really happening is through Christ's body and blood, we are being shown his glory again and being strengthened in our connection to this God this God of eternal and unfailing love. When you're sitting and reading your Bible, what that looks like is just a person reading a book. But what's happening is the Holy Spirit is using God's written word to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your security in your new identity as one of these people who get God's glory. But that's not it. If you were the only Christian on planet Earth, that would be great for you. If this church was empty and it were just you, you could sing all the praises you want. You could pick your favorite hymns no matter what. You could say, you could say your favorite passages over and over again, and that would be great, but your joy would not be complete. Christianity by yourself is not all that fun. These people, the real joy of this vision of Isaiah is that this multitude upon multitudes of people are sharing joy, are sharing their glory. What are they doing? They're not bringing bulls and calves and goats and pigeons as their offerings. They're bringing each other before the altar of God, not to sacrifice, not to kill, but to say, hear God. I love you so much. I love what you've done for me. I'm so thankful I brought my friend, my kid, my mom. Because if the greatest joy that we can have is to realize what God has done for us, if the greatest thing we can do with our lives is to simply thank him for what he has done for us in the service, in the way that you work, in the way that you talk to people, saying thank you to God by your actions. If God loves you with an unfailing, eternal, everlasting love, and you know for certain that that's how he loves everyone else that you know, then the greatest thing we can do is take the glory that we have been caused to understand and bring it to someone else. Because what you're really doing is bringing that person to God. The best offering you can give isn't just money, isn't just time, isn't just church attendance. The best offering, the best gift you can give to God is someone else. Amen.